uh, please stand out of uh, reverence and also joy over the truth that we get to read this morning together. We'll read Genesis 1 all the way to chapter 2, verse 3. Let's read together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the earth. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. The fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them 
And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Ian. And today, our second passage, a second time of focus on this wonderful doctrine of creation. You know, last week, we looked really at the first five words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created. And this doctrine, I think, these opening pages of the Bible are so very foundational for how we're to operate in the world, as we'll see in these seven or eight weeks, just how many truths are there and how we can understand who we are and who God is by looking at this uh, very important uh, facet of who God is. And so last week, again, in the beginning, God created. I think a lot of uh, believers, a lot of Christians, you know, we can begin to see this uh, teaching as, as a liability. Uh, that, gosh, I wish the Bible didn't say that because you have the rise of modern science and a lot of people saying that uh, being a thinking person and being a scientific person is incompatible with what the Bible says. And I hope last week, uh, as you, you read with me and looked at it with me, you say, actually, it's not a liability at all, but actually, this is a glorious teaching and one that makes the most sense. You know, think back. You really only have two, ch- two choices when it comes to uh, all the cosmos. You say, either we're here by chance, in which case you have to say something like Lawrence Krauss does, which makes no sense at all. He has to say, basically, there's no difference between something and nothing, which is nonsense. So there's blind chance... Or there's a supernatural being who's really smart, who speaks matter into existence and sustains it. Say both of those are positions of faith. That you can't put God in a scientific laboratory under the microscope and you can't prove a negative, especially on this kind of a vast scale. And so what you have is blind chance versus the supernatural God that's presented in Scripture. Now here's the thing. If you're on the side of chance and you're logically consistent, then you ought to take everything that goes with it, which means you have a very difficult time explaining the rise of consciousness and intelligence. Say, how did inanimate things, single-celled organisms, give rise to sophisticated beings like Homo sapiens? Also, you'll have a real problem explaining ethics. How do we determine right and wrong? I mean, if it's all by chance, how can I call someone else out of bounds? or perhaps even logic or reason itself. Say, if my own brain's the product of chance, 
how can I tell somebody else they're being irrational? Say, all of it is just comes from the soup, comes from the mush. Alternatively, if you're say, I believe in God, you say, well, he's my foundation for ethics, that he's an intelligent being, we're made in his image, that's where consciousness and rationality comes from. So you really only have two choices, and if you're consistent, you ought to take everything that goes with it. Moreover, those on the side of chance tell us that we need to choose between science and faith. You say, that's an absurdity. Say, we don't need to choose between agency and laws. You say, it's no logical contradiction at all to believe that there's an architect of everything, but also to see, believe in the laws that he made. And that's what the theistic position allows us to do. And that's really the thrust, or one of the thrusts of what we're going to be looking at today. Say, we're on the side of compatibility. Say, science gives us the facts. It's the raw data. But science can never give you values. Say, no data, no facts are self-interpreting. It just tells us what's there. Say, we need our faith to give us our values and things like why and how. Say, that's where our faith comes in. And so today, we build on that. Say, beyond those first five words, we have this glorious opening of the seven days. Now, these seven days now have become one of the more divisive issues in our faith, haven't they? Say, you know that. Say, there's all kinds of different interpretations of what these days are and how long they are and what sense we're to make of them and what kind of genre Genesis is. I mean, we, we're met with immediate questions, aren't we? So take, for example, verse, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. You say, well, there's waters everywhere. Say, the, the, the whole created order is covered. There's a face of the waters but then we see waters are readdressed in the subsequent days. So where is it? Where exactly are the waters created? Are the waters somehow created before day one? Or what's long been noted all the way since the third century, at least from the time of origin of Alexandria, who says, how in the world do we have a solar day if the sun's not made until day four? So if we're to understand these as 24-hour solar days, that is calendar days, what do we do with days without the sun? How do we even make sense of that? Because that's how we measure a day. Or what about the seventh day? Say all the first six days, we're told that they have evening and morning, the nth day. But the seventh day has no evening and morning. What do we do with that? Or how about the order of things as we're going to keep going through this, but note, you'll note, say you've read ahead a little bit, you'll see in chapter one, it's very clear, the order goes vegetation, then human beings. But if you read chapter two, verse five, the author goes out of his way to say it goes human beings, then vegetation. Say, how do we make sense of that? One of the chapters, either chapter one or chapter two, cannot be sequential. See, I think all of these give us reason to pause. Say, Genesis 1 to 3 is not a scientific textbook. Say, if we view it that way, if we say we come to this, say, after all the centuries of the top minds looking at astronomy and geology, say, all that accumulated wisdom, all those books, and then we say that Genesis 1 to 3 is supposed to really uh, talk on that level, say, we're going to be very disappointed that the Bible's a book about God. That what we're trying to learn here is what, who God is and who we are and what he's done. That's our focus. That these seven days, the length of time that they are, ought not divide us. So if you need more reasons, just the uncertain questions that we're left with. But how about the history of the church? Say the wonderful minds of the reformers 
Say people like Calvin and Luther, who we very much uphold here as being uh, those who thought rightly about God and his word. Say Calvin and Luther would have thought that these six days were calendar days, that is six literal solar days. But that's far from the uniform position. Say if you go a thousand years before Calvin and Luther, you have the great St. Augustine. And Augustine, you know what he's perplexed about is not that the six days is too short, which is what we're worried about today. But Augustine says, why did God take so long? Why did he set it apart on six days and rest on the seventh? In other words, Augustine said God could have created it all with one word. Why the six days? That Augustine does not think that these are calendar days, nor does the great medieval theologian Aquinas. Then you get something altogether different when you come to the great Princetonians of the late 19th century and the early 20th century. So these great defenders of orthodoxy. I mean, if ever those who stand up for the Bible, it's people like Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield. But neither Hodge nor Warfield or J. Gresham Machen, you know, say all those great fighters for orthodoxy, they did not think that these were solar calendar days. The point that I'm trying to make is that we want to approach this text with a degree of modesty. That I think that there are at least 12 views, those that I can count, at least 12 different views of these days held by Christians who would affirm something like the Apostles' Creed. What I'm talking about is that there are those who really believe in Jesus, that they're sinners, that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that he was raised again, that this is the only way to God, uh, that it's not by works, but it's all by Jesus. People who would really believe that, who had a very different view of these days. And to put this more in perspective, I think, we tend to think of what, what we can call the young earth creationist position as somehow being the most traditional or uh, somehow the most biblical. And you say, I, I don't think that's the case. Say, if you go back even 100 years, there's a famous compendium of articles called the fundamentals. See, the fundamentals uh, were those uh, leading um, conservative, theologically conservative thinkers who were uh, arguing against, uh, debating in the academic sense against the so-called modernists. And in that famous compendium of articles, there are a number on the doctrine of creation. And I would say not one of them, so far as I can tell, holds to what we would now call young earth creationism. That young earth creationism is really a product of the late 20th century. I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just trying to give us some perspective that these days, the length of them is a matter of, uh, a point of, of difference among real believing Christians. The danger that we run is when we think one view should become a test for orthodoxy. So I want to be very careful doing that for all the reasons that I just said. Do I really want to box out people like Warfield and Hodge and Augustine and Aquinas and, and, and Machen and, and others to say really they're outside the bounds of orthodoxy? Say, I don't want to do that. Rather, what I want to do is come to the days, the first chapter of Genesis, with a degree of humility, firstly, say I may be wrong, about the length of the days, but there are some things that are very obvious and that all Christians will agree on, and that is who God is and how he's fashioned the universe for who we are. Now, some will object, say, well, you're just, you know, kind of skipping around here. You're trying to accommodate uh, the scientists and accommodate evolutionists, and that's what I'm doing. Say, not at all. So you remember last week, we've been very clear that there's nothing naturalistic that is purely naturalistic about what the Bible says about creation. Say, in the beginning, God. Say, any naturalist and atheist is going to object. It doesn't matter the mechanism that we posit, say, the mechanism of how things came about. As long as God's a part of the equation, as being the key mover, the one who speaks, 
say there's always going to be an objection from atheistic scientists. So we're not trying to build a bridge, so to speak. We're just trying to take the Bible for what it says and not, you remember last week, overinterpret the text to make it say something that it doesn't, thereby creating unnecessary conflict. So these things being said, say, what is really this text about? What can we all agree on beside the length of the days? And, and I think, firstly, we've got to see this first uh, bold point in your notes, and that is this, that God imposes good order on creation. God imposes good order. And what do I mean? Well, look at verse 2. I think verse 2 is very odd. So in the beginning, God created everything. That's what's meant by the heavens and the earth. But what he created, did you notice? It's formless, empty, dark, and wet. Why did God create everything in a state of formlessness and emptiness and darkness and wetness? Say, that's the world that we come across here in verse 2. Say, why did he do this? And I think for a number of reasons. And first, we have to remember that this is an ancient Near Eastern text. They say written by Moses, say some about 1400 BC, say it's at least a 3400 year old text written about a time, an undisclosed time prior to that, creations, that we can't get to the time of when this happened. So this text is a product of the ancient Near East. And what we know, say studying from other ancient Near Eastern texts, is that chaos was a very bad thing in other ancient Near Eastern religions. Say chaos is what the gods were always trying to subdue. So I think at one element, what the writer's trying to communicate is that it's very much confined to its own time and place, and that is that the God of the Bible subdues chaos. That he's the one with very simple words can subdue chaos and put everything into order. Say more importantly, I think, another reason this is the case is we're supposed to see this, that originally created matter was uninhabitable for life. So that's what's meant by formless, emptiness, darkness, and wetness. In other words, say this is not a suitable climate for li li living things. And the rest of the days are God forming this matter to make it inhabitable for the great crescendo, right? The great end of his creation, which is human beings. So this is about God fashioning the universe, making it inhabitable for humans, because initially it is not inhabitable for human beings that it's made in a state of formlessness. Now, to build this case, we'll note this, that in Hebrew, there are at least seven words for make. And I think we can get a little help from playing around with these different words in English. So you think about how we might use the word create versus the word make. Um, so create in the Bible, uh, create in verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created, that verb create there is something only God does in the Bible. That's not applied to human beings. Only God creates. What we mean here is that this is God creating from nothing. Sometimes the Latin phrase is used, creatio ex nihilo, fancy way of saying God speaks matter into existence, what we talked about last week. God is eternal. He uh, is, is uh, there well before matter. He imposes space and time. He's above space and time, and he creates. But after that notice, he does a lot of making. And I think in English we do have this distinction. You think about the way that we use the word make a meal or that phrase make a meal. Say when we say make a meal we're not saying that the person spoke it into existence right that there was a non-existent something and then all of a sudden the meal was there but actually what we mean when we say I'm going to make a meal is that we prepare it. 
that we make it edible. We make it just the way that we want it in order to eat. That's what we mean by make. Or how about another phrase? How about to make your bed? So we say, I'm going to make my bed this morning. You don't mean that you're bringing it into existence. You mean that you're ordering it. You're making it so that it looks nice and so that dust particulates don't get underneath where your sheets where you sleep you say that's the reason we make our bed that we don't speak it into existence but we form it we fashion it we order it we make it more presentable is that what God's doing here in the beginning he speaks matter into existence it's uninhabitable and chaotic and the rest of these days are about God fashioning it and ordering it and making it just right for human life. I think that's what we're supposed to get here. And so you'll see also, let's pay very close attention to the text. Look at the verbs or the participles. Say, notice in verse 6, right, what does God do? He separates. Or how about a bit further down, verses 9 and verses 10, he gathers. Or a little bit further yet, verse 17, God sets. You see what he's doing? He's making, he's fashioning, informing, he's separating, gathering, setting. The emphasis of Genesis chapter 1, ladies and gentlemen, is on God forming the cosmos to make it inhabitable for life, especially human beings. You can kind of just feel the text build up to that point, right? That God's going until finally, finally, let us make man in our image. That's the thrust of this. God fashioning the universe, making it inhabitable. And now let's look again at the agency of how is this done. See, you have to love the refrain, don't you? And God said. And God said. You say, well, how does God do this? He does it with his word. Say, now you know where I'm going with this, right? Or at least I was lost as a young man. Maybe I've shared this story, but I went in quite keen. My first ever assignment, theological assignment, I'm 18. I write a note to my pastor, who'd later become a mentor, and he says, I'll take you under my wing, and we're going to look at different theological themes. And the whole idea was to see how the whole Bible fit together. And my first assignment was to read this passage that we read this morning, 1, 1 to 2, 3. And my question was this, where's Jesus? Say, I was very troubled. Say, I knew enough about the Bible. Say, Jesus isn't in that part of the Bible. Say, Jesus doesn't come until Matthew in the New Testament. And I'm thinking, is he playing a trick on me? Why would he ask me, where's Jesus in Genesis chapter 1? Say, I failed to see this point. God creates, God makes and fashions by his word. And if you remember last week, we read John chapter 1. Say, in the beginning was the word. You see, the testament of Scripture is that Jesus is God's eternal world, the word, that Jesus, the personality of the second person of the Trinity, was there at creation, that Jesus spoke the world into existence, and God said, as the agent, right, through his word, to have these things happen, and I love it, right? And God said, and it was so. And God said, and it was so. Do you see the power of God's word? Say, this is about Jesus. And also, I don't want it to be lost on us, but do you see how Trinitarian this chapter is? Say, a lot of us say, well, there's no doctrine of the Trinity in the Bible. Say, that just comes from the systematicians. You know, where's the Trinity? Notice here, right? Verse 2, God created the heavens and the earth in verse 1, but then verse 2, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God creates by the agency of his word, who is Jesus. You say, you can read Genesis chapter 1, in a Trinitarian fashion. We have God the Father, the great architect of it all, the great artist, who speaks matter into existence through his word, the second person of the Trinity, 
and the Spirit of God is hovering over the whole process. You don't believe me? Take a look at verse 26 as well. How, how interesting that is. It let us make man in our image. Now, many you say, well, what is this us? And we'll talk more about it next week. Is this uh, some kind of a polytheism that's leaked its way in from other ancient Near Eastern religions? Say, so that's the version that I got in graduate school. Uh, you know, being in a, a non-Christian university, say this is just a mistake by the editors that you have a, a polytheistic uh, verse kind of sneaking its way into the first page of the Bible say alternatively say what we know this as is that God has eternally existed in a trinity and we have that trinity even in the first page of the Bible God created the spirit is hovering and his word creates that the Bible God is trinitarian in all the things that he does now let's pay again close attention to the text so the point that we've tried to make is God has imposed order on the material world in order to make it habitable for human life and animal life, but especially human life. And if you know this, I'm going to press this a bit further. Look at the relationship between the days. Say again, I believe that this is historical narrative. I'm not suggesting that it's poetry, but it does have literary devices, some of which we've been looking at. But notice day one. Day one, God makes the day and the night. Day two, the waters in the sky. Day three, dry land and vegetation. But then day four, the sun and the moon. Day five, the fish and the birds. Day six, big land animals and humans. You say, now, what about the relationship of those days? Can you see the perfect symmetry? Day one and day four. Day two and day five. Day three and day six. In other words, the first three days, God gives, let's call it the arena. He makes this, the space in which things will operate. It's kind of just uh, laying the groundwork. But then in days four to six, he adorns. He makes the space and then he adorns. In other words, the day and the night of day one are matched by the sun and the moon of day four. The sun for the day and the moon for the night. The waters in the sky in day two are matched by the fish and the birds in day five. Fish for the waters, birds for the sky. Day three, dry land and vegetation. Well, of course, that's how animals live, where they live and what they eat. That there's a perfect symmetry between days one and three and days four to six. God makes and he adorns. He makes and he adorns. It all is his. And I think that this captures well other parts of the Bible. And as I hope I said last week, say we think the doctrine of creation is only in the first couple pages of the Bible. Actually, it's everywhere. It's the baseline for so much else, really everything else. And if you look at a place like Job 38, so you remember the story of Job, right? That he's questioning God and God comes on the scene and speaks at the very end of a, a rather long book in the Bible. And in a place like Job 38, remember what he says to Job, were you there? when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I told the waters where they could be and how far they could go? Say it's very much in line with Genesis 1-1 that God fashions the universe. He sustains it. He imposes a good order and makes it just right for human beings. Now, I'm going to uh, go a bit further now on this matter of science. You say, if this is the case, that God imposes a good order... How does it come to us? And again, I don't want to give a long talk here on science. That's not my goal. We, of course, are people of faith. But it's very important to see how does this relate into the real world in which we live. And you'll notice that there are actually a lot in the scientific community who appreciate this almost supernatural order in the natural world. 
And I know it can be surprising to some. Some I'll meet to many of you, say, in medicine and things like that, and you have non-Christian colleagues, and you say, how do I handle this? Say, isn't it fascinating that there are so many scientists who actually do have a strong faith and if you actually are interested in this thing that you can you can find them and and read them but here are a few and again i want to make this point so i'm going to read a couple of of quotes here but this is from arno penzias he's a nobel laureate in physics listen to how he talks astronomy leads us to a unique event a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan. Now listen to what that Nobel laureate in physics said. He said exactly what I think Genesis 1 is saying. He says, look, it looks as if there's an order in the cosmos that it can't be by chance, or if it is, it's just so incredibly remote that a universe would be made like ours and we would have an earth like ours. He says it looks as if, or we could use the phrase, somebody played with the dials. That there's a really, really smart mind out there, we could say capital M mind, or a really, really good architect, capital A, who imposed order, and that this is detected in physics. Or how about Paul Davies in his book, Superforce? Listen again. The laws which enable the universe to come into being spontaneously seem themselves to be the product of exceedingly ingenious design. The universe must have a purpose, and the evidence of modern physics suggests strongly to me that the purpose includes us. An amazing thing for a top physicist to say. Say, I've studied the mathematical laws. I've looked at the rate of expansion. It's, it's beyond a doubt that the world came into existence, which we talked about last week, from nothing. And it looks as if a really, really smart, supernatural being is responsible for this and that the purpose includes us, exactly what Genesis 1.1 says. You know, others like Bertrand Russell... I'm amazed, you know, Bertrand Russell was a committed atheist, one of the most formidable foes of the Christian faith in the 20th century. But I read his little essay in 1919, The Study of Mathematics. And in The Study of Mathematics, Bertrand Russell compares mathematics to art. He says it's finer than any sculpture. He says it's like poetry. You say, think of that. Say, Bertrand Russell describes mathematics as an art form And you say, well, mathematics, is that really a product of human minds? Or does it come from the universe itself? You say, actually, it's there. Mathematical law explains what's there, right? And Bertrand Russell says that it's like a sculpture, that it's it's like poetry. Say, anytime we think of a sculpture or a a a poem, we say we know that there's a sculptor or a poet. You say, how Russell can't make that jump? To say the mathematics are like art, must there be someone who invented it? I'll I'll give you an example here. Uh, Say every often I come home uh, after being at the church here, I drive uh, into my driveway and I'll notice um, markings of chalk on my driveway. Say I'll notice shapes, circles and triangles and rectangles and sometimes I'll uh, see words, words that you we might say a kindergartner or shapes that a two-year-old might be learning, and sometimes they're all over the driveway. Now, you imagine I came into my house, and I said, how do those markings in those words get on the driveway? Can you imagine my family said, well, 
all by chance. Say, we, we don't know that just spontaneously came there. I'd say, that's ridiculous. Say, it's words, it's a, a language, it's identifiable shapes in a sequence. Say, there's actually no possible way that chalk could have arranged it, 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 it that way on, on my sidewalk. It must have taken a smart mind, a thinking mind, to make those etchings. See, that's exactly the argument we're making here, only on a much, much vaster and much more impressive scale. Say, the mathematical laws and things like genetics are like a language, they're like art form, and all we're doing is making that jump to say, obviously, when we have that, there's an artist. And I think that those who are naturalistic in their positions on this, say, they actually have to adopt, again, some kind of very interesting and improbable positions like the multiverse theory say well you have an infinite number of universes one of them had to be like ours but again that's a position of faith ladies and gentlemen what I'm trying to show us here is that God imposes a good order that he fashioned the universe in these days to make it just right for living living life especially for human beings and that in pockets of modern physics what we call intelligent design, or another phrase, the anthropic principle, right? The anthropic principle is just the specified conditions that are unique to our universe and our earth that allow human beings to live. The anthropic principle, this is not lost on modern science, but it is then a position of faith, right? You say the data's there, but then a position of faith to say, wow, God's really impressive. One more image here, I hope that it helps. Say, I sometimes think if what if Bill Gates or somebody uh, came and gave me uh, someone who's technologically illiterate a tutorial on how Microsoft worked on the computer say maybe it's an all-day seminar I would be completely lost but one thing I wouldn't conclude is that Bill Gates didn't exist or that the architect of Microsoft didn't exist and that it all happened by chance actually what I think I'd walk away saying is Bill Gates is a really smart guy that's the point of this passage Look at the beauty of the natural world, the mathematical law, how things like genetics and language work. Do you say, isn't there a really good mind out there who made this just so? And can we worship him in that sense? All right, let's move on then. So God imposed the good order. And a few more things here. I want us again to turn, pay careful attention to the text in a few phrases, especially according to their kinds, bringing forth and multiplying. Why are these phrases so important? Say, the progression of the days, you'll notice the things that are made are more or less the same order that natural science would say that we have in, in the uh, fossil record, for example. But notice how God creates. He creates according to their kinds. And I, here's where I'm going to get, I'm going to use the, the E word, the word evolution. Say, of course we reject um, common ancestry uh, that is naturalistic common ancestry macroevolution. We say that's incompatible, right? Naturalistic evolution without God in the picture is incompatible with Scripture. But we do have this wonderful little phrase repeated God makes animals according to their kinds. See, I think we must be very comfortable with what we call microevolution. You say, God makes according to their kinds. So I'm looking, you can just Google this yourselves. I don't know how accurate it is, but I imagine it is. Say, look at how many species of insects there are. Tens and hundreds of thousands of insect species. Or how about birds and fish? Again, tens of thousands of species. Do we say God made every single species that has ever existed in the beginning? Or do we say maybe this language of according to kinds 
allows some room for microevolution. So yeah, fish breed with other fish and out comes something that looks a bit different. Say, does the Bible actually validate this kind of thing when it says God makes the animals and the plants according to their kinds? See, I think it's a wonderful phrase, and I'm constantly thinking about adaptations. You see, I think if we can leave the kind of history of the debate out of it, say, adapting is a very good thing. See, I'm always having this talk, uh, thinking through as, you know, leadership principles or talking to young people, say, adapting and being flexible is a very good thing. Say, maybe God enabled us to adapt to certain things. And uh, besides, this is beyond the shadow of a doubt that things change is why we need our flu vaccines every year and so forth but i think it's in genesis 1 god creates according to their kinds and then built on that right we have language as if god allows the living things to bring forth and to multiply there's a validation of natural processes in genesis 1 say the reason other plants are able to reproduce right from the very very beginning is because they produce seeds that those seeds would fall off and that they would germinate and that they would grow so yes god sustains the process but there's a validation of nature the same with language of multiplying say the animals of course they're to uh, reproduce and and human beings are to reproduce say by the natural method that is you know to 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 have intercourse and to reproduce say god's validating that that's how we're supposed to do it so he both speaks matter into existence but allows the natural processes that he set up the good natural processes to work their course Again, say, I hope I didn't get lost in the weeds there. I'm just saying that the language of the text itself says God makes, he creates the laws, he imposes the order, and then validates the natural processes that he set up. Let's not lose sight of that according to their kinds that we're to bring forth, to multiply, and so are the plants. And that's exactly what we observe as well. Again, not in accommodation to science. Again, some saying, look at he's just trying to, to please those who say, no, to say God's all the way. This is about God. This is what he does. This is what he's done. And that's never going to please those who don't believe in God. We're just trying to evaluate what the Bible says. Now, last point here, and I know there's so much to say, but we have uh, several more weeks. But the last point really from chapter two is that what do we do with the seventh day? Why does God need to rest? Say, was God tired? I mean, six days, he's labored hard. Now he's got to rest. What do we do with this? You say, well, I think we go to the answer partly to the New Testament book of Hebrews, something like Hebrews chapter 4, where we say God's rest, right, after he created the material world, say God now is working out his salvation plan. He's redeeming human beings, and that's why the writer of the Hebrews compares our salvation to God's rest. Say, not only does the six days and the seventh are pattern for living, as we talked about some weeks ago in Luke's gospel, we say the Sabbath, that we're made to rest one day out of seven to think about God. Say, yes, the created order is a pattern for us in our week. But also, you say in Hebrews chapter four, say we have the language of rest being the equivalent to saving faith in Jesus. That when we see what's really happened here, that this is God's theater of glory, that we've been restless, uh, because of the fall, which we'll look at in a few weeks, how wonderful to think of salvation as rest. And here's where I think make this a bit more practical now for our, our faith now. That is, what a wonderful concept of rest and being at right with God. I know some um, 
thinking through this right now, maybe your faith's in not such a good spot or you're not, not a believer at all, you say, but one thing you feel very restless, very anxious. I'm always reading studies on how anxious we are as a people and uh, talking to my neighbors and so forth, but say, what an idea that I can be right with God, that I can enter his rest, that I can do that through Jesus, the very one who spoke matter into existence, came down in the form of a person, right? He took on a human nature and died for my transgressions. That say, if this is the right reading of Genesis chapter 1 into 2 3, that God fashioned the universe for human beings, say, what a mess we've made of it. Say, we've not thought about God at all. Some of us have barely ever. They say, I've made a mess of it. And I'm very anxious and depressed. Boy, does that sound nice to be at rest, to enter God's rest through Jesus. So we agree with him about our sin and how we've not appreciated his cosmos and what he was doing there. How we, as we'll see, just like Adam, and if you say, made a mess of, sh- shaking our fist at him. Say, but the Lord Jesus came to put us right, the very one who spoke matter into existence. Say, may today be that day where we rest in him. Friends, I hope that this has been an encouragement to you. Say, last week, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And today we see how he fashioned that. He made it just right for human beings. That we were to delight in his theater of glory, to to worship him, to have a relationship with him. Say, in Jesus, we can be restored to that. So I'll pray as the team comes back up. Father, thank you for Genesis chapter 1. And while the length of the days can get a lot of people very agitated and it's easy for us to make our own view a test for orthodoxy i pray that we don't uh, divide over this issue that we realize that there are sincere believers in you uh, believers in the lord jesus who have a different view on the length of the days and and the the the, um, the mechanisms of how these things came about but i pray today that what we talked about would not be lost on anyone that you're a good creator who's fashioned things, that this is seen in the proper study of science. And when, uh, you know, I think a number see that your hands are on the created order. And also, Lord, that we have an invitation here that we're to, uh, our proper place is to be resting in you. That's how we were originally made, to, to, to be resting in you. And that that offer comes in Jesus. So help us to, help us to confess our sin, to repent to turn from the world and turn towards you. Lord, thank you for your created order. We marvel at you. May we rest in Christ for his name's sake. Amen. Praise to the Lord.